Sales Stories, Raw and Real is a podcast series designed to help people in business development, whatever their level, by learning from the experiences of others. We'll be talking about the salespeople they've met, led and worked with, and share their insights into what we need to do more of and less of. You'll hear the very best and worst of people's experiences to help you recognize the traps that we've all fallen into, get through them, and out the other side, having learned what you needed to along the way. G'day, everybody. It's Charlie here again. Today, I'm joined by Peter McGrath. Peter McGrath is a career salesperson, having lived in the US and Sweden for a number of years and spent how many years in Asia, Peter, were you? Uh, there were two two secondments, Charlie, one in Singapore, which was for about six months, and then uh, Vietnam for about eight months. Yeah, okay. Um, and then uh, 2014, not in Asia, of course, but 2014, I lived in Sweden for about 11 months, um, and then the US uh, for about six years. Six years in the US. So, yeah. so Peter, I often think that um, one's career as a salesperson is either chance or choice. What what do you think took you to sales and, and have you ever reflected on on how, how you got to what you ended up doing? Yeah, it came through my father's influence by default, Charlie. Uh, he was a salesman. He was in the paper industry as well. Um, I left school and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was no academic, um, you know, and I was uh, stuffing around doing bits and pieces uh, first year out of school. And uh, I don't know what hit me. One day there was an ad in the paper, uh, in the paper industry, and I reflected on my father's career and he was able to find myself and my three brothers through a beautiful Riverview. So I thought, you know, he's he's achieved something. Uh, He seems to have a great passion in what he does and I believe in passion. You know, if you're going to be a salesman, if you don't have passion, you're not going to go anywhere. So, I, uh, yeah, I applied for this job and I got it. Uh, so that was way, way back in 1981 and that was... So how, how old were you then, Peter? 18. 18, right. Oh, straight out of school. And, and and what was the role that you were appointed to? It was to? for a sales cadetship, as they term it then. I don't think they use that term anymore. Oh, no, you know, you'd be surprised. or something, <laughs> you'd, you know. You'd be surprised. Some fancy American title. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, a company out of Alexandria. So I, uh, there was a three-tier training program for 12 or 18 months. And first job was um, in a warehouse. Uh, you know, you meet a couple of characters, uh, you know, <laughs> in a warehouse, a lot of uh, Italians and Greeks and what have you, a lot of swearing, um, but filled with characters. Uh, and that's where, you know, I actually had to uh, get the stock out, understand what product was what, uh, have a look at an order sheet, find it in the warehouse, uh, wrap it up, prepare it for delivery, and that was um, how I actually, I suppose you'd say, was um, you know the first experience of uh, the commercial world. You know, yeah. um, I saw an you know an order come down the chute. They used to have some of these vacuum type of chutes. You know, they'd put a paper order in a plastic tube and you'd pull it out of the chute, and then you'd unravel it. And it, that uh, would describe the stock that you had to pull, and then you had to load that in a pallet. Um, but the point is that you know I had to obviously understand you know what there was a name, but that was like hieroglyphics. You know I had to understand you know this was like Conolux, but is that a coated paper? Is it a white paper? Is it a coloured paper? Is it a textured paper? So of course being the warehouse, you know I was able to feel those papers. I would see them. Do you you know, think? So it was a wonderful, I suppose, first introduction because if you went straight to the office, you'd have no idea what the hell all these names were and these titles and these brands and what have you. I, I, I love how they did that because yeah. uh, I, I often think that, uh, and even these days when I have a new salesperson on board, even if they're not 18, um, I'll put them in the warehouse for the first four to six weeks because I think it's a couple of things. It's touching and feeling the product, yep, yep. but it's Experience. also it's, it's also building relationships with the individuals on the ground. And and you say characters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're the guys that you have to lean on to, yeah. to, to turn a product or service Absolutely. into um, something that, a, that satisfies a customer. So as a salesperson, 
uh, the relationships internally in a business are really, really crucial. But it's also a testing environment, Charlie, because, you know, you're thrown in the deep end um, and you've got to learn to swim. Yeah. You know, so you're, you've been given an opportunity, uh, in my case, at Gadetship, which will take you into sales and administration and potentially management. Well, if you can't cut it, actually, at the, uh, the, the coalface as such, well, you're going to leave. Or somebody's going to obviously tap you on the shoulder and say, well, you know, we've offered this cadetship, but you're taking a position of somebody else. You know, we're getting these applications all the time, as they did. Well, you know, we don't see any future in this relationship. So, you know, that stint was, I think, uh, six, maybe eight months. Yeah, right. Then, Before you even talked to a customer? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And yeah. then you were put on the phones. Okay. Back then, you know, I mean, you had to take orders over the phone and that was quite a daunting, very much a daunting experience and I can remember probably the first week every day I would go home in tears. Yeah, right. I'd go home in tears because of the pressure. Yeah. You know, you were taking orders over the phone and then you had to calculate it. Uh, some of the stock had to be cut by guillotine. So you had to calculate on the phone and give those quotations on the phone. You had to look up the raw material costs, then the cutting costs, the labour costs, wrapping costs, if that was the case. And um, No spreadsheets in those days, no, mate. No, no. no spreadsheets, mate. No app. No computers. No app. All you had was a calculator, the Casio calculator. <laughs> Maybe it was, uh, you know, solar-powered and you had to stick it against the window. That would have been advanced for 1981. Yeah. Just going to fast-forward a little bit because I'm actually interested in in the grounding that you're able to get these in those days. How has that helped you these days? And and, and can you see um, over the course of your career, um, and we won't share the length of that career uh, to protect you, but um, how do you think that helped you today? understanding and the ability to deal with pressure? I suppose two things spring to mind, Charlie, is that you've got to trust people to lean on and ask for advice. Uh, So you've got to have that confidence to do so. Um, You've got to accept or uh, accept the word. Um, You've got to understand that there will be some failures, so... Don't be fearful of failure. Um, and I suppose the other thing is that you've got to trust. So I said trust, but you've got to get on with people. You know, if you're in the cold face there, as I call it, down there in the warehouse, um, you know, as you can imagine in those days, there was a lot of initiation going on as well. <laughs> Let's not talk <laughs> no, about we that. won't go down that path. But, uh, you know, the statute of limitations yeah, may need yeah. to be called upon. But also you can understand who are the guys that were actually doing it for a bit of fun and who are the guys who are actually, you know, uh, how shall I say, um, just belittling you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you built that trust with the person that you knew that was actually going to help you, but, you know, they were doing it in a humorous way. They were taking the mickey, of course, but they weren't, you know, there were other people that would belittle you. So, of course, you had to have that maturity to stay away from the people that uh, were belittling you because, of course, you knew that they weren't the people that could help you. Mm. Uh, they were just doing it for, you know, the piss take. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to learn from those type of people. So I suppose there's two. I reckon these days, I reckon these days they call that social intelligence and being able to read people yeah. and, and whether someone is taking the piss or whether you're going to learn something from the character building that you're going to get. Sure. So, Absolutely. I, 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 you know, and it doesn't happen in five minutes. You know, no, you go through a lot no. of pain to understand that. And as I say, you know, you're raw, you're immature, you're naive, um, you want to make it work, your first job. Uh, so you've got all those pressures. Um, so, um, but you, you know, you get through it. So, how long were you in that particular company for? You, you, you got through your cadetship, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, and then I, um, you know, I suppose fast forward after doing a number of roles, I think it was within, well, it wasn't too long, I think it was within maybe 18 months, two years, I was put on the, out on the road. Yeah, right, okay. that's young, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, so, you know, 21, something like that, and you had a company car and you... Happy days. Well, we didn't have a mobile phone there, but you had a beeper. <laughs> 
beeper. The big time. You know, when the beep, beep went off, you were uh, summoned or you had to call into the office or what have you to get your message. Um, yeah, so uh, so then I was a rep for three years and then uh, a supplier identified that, uh, you know, I might have something to offer his company and I joined him and uh, that was an international trading company that was selling paper to okay. this warehouse, group, not warehouse distribution, it was called a paper merchant yeah, at okay. the time. They yeah. would hold paper, obviously, in a warehouse for distribution. Yeah. It was a paper merchant. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then things took off from there. I was exposed to the international market because we represented overseas mills. Yeah, right. So, this, so would, this is towards the middle to late 80s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would have... Um, yeah, I've had to think back at it, but it was, yeah, it was mid-80s. I would have been, you know, 24 then, yeah, uh, something like that. And, yeah, I was off overseas and some of that was business class. <laughs> so it was, nice. you know, I thought I'm, uh, you know, a pig and shitty. Yeah. I, I made it. That's true. I made it. You know, the company car and the beeper and, the, you know, a couple of trips overseas and going yeah. to the US and UK and Europe and what have you and, yeah. So, so when when was your first posting overseas? Like, is, is this a you did some travelling here? But was that was that a posting? Well, not on those in those days. Yeah. Uh, so, so can I just explore that for a bit? Yeah. So, so what what were you doing when you were on those trips then? Well, I was visiting suppliers. Okay, obviously uh, understanding you know, their products better, yeah. uh, reporting obviously what was happening in Australia and New Zealand where we represented those mills. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it would be uh, their international annual sales conferences when all the international agents come together in one site. It might be their paper mill, which is always quite fascinating because you go to see how it's made and, uh, you know, all the cake, if you know all the ingredients that go yeah. to the paper mill to yeah. obviously uh, spit out some paper on the other end of the machine. Um, so what I'm interested that, and I think others will be, but, but but the cultural differences that you were exposed to in your late 20s. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, between, uh, because for me, we, we said just before we teed up, for me I didn't get exposure until I was in my 40s to international right. sales right. Yeah. The, the cultural differences. Yeah. In my, I was I was quite limited in the geographic patch that I spent yeah. most of my time in. So, can you share it? What were the big? What were the things? Well, I suppose the biggest uh, um, challenge and unique exposure, I suppose, and culture was the Swedes. Yeah. Um, you know, we represented uh, a number of Swedish mills, and obviously they didn't. Well, they do speak English, but uh, when you got to the mill site. You know, the senior people and the executives and the salespeople, because they're exposed to international markets, they would all speak English. But when you got to the mill sites and the forests and so on, uh, a lot of these guys were shy to speak English. I say guys, but guys and girls, they were shy to speak English. But most of them could speak English well enough. But beyond the language, you know, it was a very, very different culture. You know, I can remember... My first trip to God, you're making all these things coming back. I've not thought about this for a long time. So, yeah, you know, again, you know, this was uh, maybe '85, '86. Um, first trip to Sweden, straight from Australia. So, 24-hour flight. Went into Gothenburg, as all the Swedes call it, Jotabore, um, and went straight to this what they call. Um, well, they call it midsummer, um, not crabs. Um, what do they call it? We have this traditional meal at summer times, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and there's a camp there, and there's drinking and what have you. And uh, um, you have to, there's crab pots, they're not crabs, crayfish, crayfish, they call it. So uh, some of their staff the night before set out all these pots. Uh, crayfish pods, pots, um, uh, they've got again, again another name for it. Mm. Um, and they set them out at night, and then all the guests have to row out and extract the crayfish from the crates, the pods, uh, and then we have to go back and cook them, you know. And uh, cooking isn't, you know, too challenging and what have you, but the bloody drinking is. 
you, know, <laughs> you got snaps and drinking songs and what have you. And I was, again, young and naive and, you know, skull to them is cheers. You know, yeah. I thought that they said skull. So I had two shots in my hands and I sculled them straight away and they're going, oh, this, this Australian boy, he can drink, you know. And, uh, and I was straight off the plane. I was absolutely dog-tired. Um, you know, jet lag had hit me as soon as I hit the tarmac in uh, in Gothenburg in the airport there and then we went out drinking and then trying to bloody row out to this lake to pick <laughs> up these crayfish. But, uh, yeah, just a, a funny, funny experience. I suppose. Yeah, and drinking all night and then they yeah. got the beers out and started singing songs and what have you and then we were up at literally Sparrow Fart the next morning, 5 a.m. to go to the mill yeah. um, because, you know, these mills run 24-7 and what have you. Uh, so that was my first so-called cultural experience. Good one. Yeah. Good one. What um, just some of those stories, um, you know, they do bring back really good memories and I love spending time in, in, in forests. Our background's kind of similar like that mm, because yeah. those people are really, that's their life. Really wonderful yeah. people as well. Um, what, is it, what is it that you've enjoyed um, mostly about a career in sales? Oh, the camaraderie. Those stories. Um, and yeah, yeah, the stories and, uh, you know, it's, it comes back to, you know, you can't build up camaraderie without having trust. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're travelling with colleagues and what have you, you know, it doesn't take too long to learn that, you know, I'm going to get along with this person or I'm not. Yeah. Now, when you're thrust together, uh, in a company and you're asked to travel overseas or spend time at a conference two to three days or whatever you and you don't like that person or you struggle to have a rapport with them, um, you need to have trust there, even though you don't like them because you're a different personality or you have different views or what have you, you can still trust them. You're just not going to obviously share too many beers afterwards or, uh, you know, invite them to your home when you return or anything mm. like that. But um, you know, that's that's but camaraderie is the over overriding the relationships, yeah, 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 absolutely. Even though you might only to be together for, for a shorter period of time, yeah. I mean, you've got to obviously have the same belief, and that's where you build that camaraderie. So, without the passion, you know, you're not in that industry, mm. or you're not going to stay in it. Mm. So, that's a given, you would say, that you know, if you've got a rapport, or you've got the same passion. Because that would eat away at that relationship. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Because you know you would be exposed. You know you're a, you know you're a fraud or what have you. You know, I mean, we've got to go down this path. You know, and I'm very passionate about that path. But you want, you don't want to go down it. Well, you know, are you really passionate about it? Do you believe in this company? Do you believe in the products? Yeah. You know, and if you don't, you might as well get off the bus. I do talk a, a little bit about um, the reason people buy is because. Um, they like no one trust you. Uh, I think the, the the next stage of that is that you um, you need to like no one trust yourself and and back your judgment sure, and sure. understand the intuition that you've learned from the social intelligence experience we talked about a few minutes ago. And but I think nirvana is when you line those two up along with uh, like no one trusting the organisation and the people you work with. Mm, mm. And when you've got those three things. Uh, happening at the same time, it's like a multiplier effect on on revenue and profit, sure, uh, sure. and and you know as as a result of all that teamwork or all the alignment of all those things coming yeah, together. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's extremely important. You've got to have those um, cogs in the wheel. Yeah. You know? Otherwise, yeah. you know they're in neutral or reverse. Yeah, you know, you've got to obviously strive towards uh, achieving momentum, and those cogs have to be moving. Yeah. No Peter, what's um can you share what's the what's the one or two um biggest sales or deals that that you're most proud of and, 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 and perhaps why? Can you can you have a bit of a yeah well, a bit um, of a think about that? Again, you're taking me back, but I don't have to think too deeply about it, Charlie. Um it would be uh selling the biggest newsprint order out of a newsprint mill in Tas- not Tasmania, uh, it's in um, New Zealand, um, to Iran. Yeah, right. 
Um, so this was uh, 2014, um, and Iran, still today, back then, of course, everybody was very much aware of it, even more so than now, that they were under sanctions. Yes. Um, and then, uh, believe it or not, they didn't have anything like eBay or um, the internet then. Wow. You know, so obviously if you had something to sell, you actually had to put it in a printed vehicle, which might be what we knew then as um, trading post. Yeah, right. So they would issue the likes of a trading post of 250 pages every day, which was a uh, literally a vehicle to buy and sell product. Yeah. So a 250-page what we know as trading post, a printed version of eBay every day. And then because you didn't have internet to sell those products or you didn't have the media internet vehicles, you didn't have the electronic means to learn about what was going on through radio, of course they had radio, mm. but of course it's controlled by the government. Yeah, uh, It's not international news as we know it. It's not, um, it's very much um, controlled by the authorities. That's a word. It's edited, but it, yeah. it's, uh, it's um, oh, I can't remember the name. Uh, we, we know the word, but it's, um, yeah. help me, Charlie. <laughs> I was, I'm thinking about the movie, um, which is uh, Robin Williams in, and it's um, not sanctioned, but it's edited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's controlled, but I can't yeah. think of the bloody word right That's now. Right. Um, and then, you know. So, so how, did, how did you get the deal? What, what are the things or the steps you had to take well, we were, to identify the opportunity? Take us yeah, and, and beyond the trading vehicle, as they call it, there was just the newspapers um, because, again, that was a vehicle, that was the main vehicle of uh, the Iranians getting any news uh, because they knew that the government would, you know, the newspaper, the, the printed newspaper would tell you some international news, whereas what I understood, I didn't speak Persian, that you, they would get very, very little international news off the electronic media, television and radio. If they could get anything, it was on the printed versions of the newspapers, the daily newspapers. Mm. And some of those were 100 pages long. So you've got the daily newspaper, 100 pages, then you've got the so-called so trading papers, 250 pages. So it's a lot of newsprint. Mm. They didn't have a mill that produced a newsprint, what we call it in the industry, and newsprint is the name of newspaper, as most people know it in the lay term. Yeah, like. sure. Yeah. Um, and because they were under sanctions, there was very, very few sources of newsprint for them to print their newspapers. I worked for a Swedish company at the time, and they weren't, because they're a neutral company, not a neutral company, a neutral country, but, mm. of course, they ended up being a neutral company because they could sell to Iran. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a lot of, um, you know, Western European um, trading companies. Obviously, the Americans could not trade there. The likes of Australia and New Zealand trading companies in forestry products that could source newsprint could not sell there. Um, and, and we, and this is all done legally, but because it's a, and this is a very, very intriguing loophole that we um, found that because any paper, but in this case, newsprint was made of natural fibres, therefore an agricultural product, it wasn't under the sanctions as such. And also it was a vehicle to communicate and that wasn't under the sanctions either, yeah, right. even though the Americans would stand their ground and say, yes, it is, but there was a legal uh, window. Let's call it that, not necessarily a loophole. Uh, if there's any lawyers listening to this, they <laughs> might think uh, you're kidding yourself. No, but, but, uh, I don't say that to lawyers, mate. <laughs> no, no, keep it away from them. Um, so because I came from Australia, I knew that there was a number of mills in Australia and New Zealand that were desperate for sales of newsprint because, of course, our market was the opposite. Everybody was reading their newspapers online. The print versions of newspapers was going southwards. Yeah, right. Um, so these mills... So you identified that opportunity yeah. from a supplier and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I was living in Sweden, working for the Swedes at the time. Um, the 
my colleagues uh, who looked after Iran were based in Gothenburg in Sweden at the time. So I was there. So he, we had a great deal of dialogue and obviously to identify oh, so, that. So you're the immediate facility of you being in the same location. Yeah. But even though, Charlie, I knew the guy that we had stationed in Tehran yeah, right, okay. before I was stationed in Sweden. Okay. Um, because, so the relationships? That yeah, got, we had the relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, he actually, and the trust? Yeah. And he knew that I was in head office and I had a fair bit of, I uh, had a good ear from, you know, the senior people, including the board, to try and push forward with this wonderful opportunity, um, which ended up being about 40,000 tonnes of newsprint, yeah, right. which is huge. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. Give us, a, give us an understanding of the value of that in Australian dollars. Oh, well, or, you're better or, at maths than I am. Or, uh, 40,000 times at, at the time, uh, Charlie, I think that was worth about 800 US dollars a tonne. 40,000 times 800. Million. 32 million. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, US dollars. Nice. And how long did you work on that deal for? Oh, God, remember? it went on for bloody ever. <laughs> God, mate, from go to woe, uh, by the time I actually receive the goods it would have been four months and and what do you think the keys to you winning that deal oh, definitely relationships yeah uh, because our Iranian colleague yeah very much add to that patience um, you know I always knew that it was going to take a long time but I also I suppose the I suppose the um, impetus to go down that path, was that I knew that the Iranians were going to struggle to find that type of volume and I knew from a supply point of view that the mill was going to struggle to get anywhere near that type of volume and they were close to shutting that mill. Yeah, right. I don't want to mention the name of the mill, but it's a mill in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and this was a godsend at the time. They were actually shutting one of their two machines. They had cut... Uh, two of their four shifts. Um, they couldn't find any other international markets. Wow. Uh, their domestic market was going southwards. Their other so-called domestic market, but of course, in the true sense, it's international. Australia was going southwards. Mm. Um, there was no optimism. They couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I like how you've 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 found um, two problems. And made one solution that that satisfied both parties. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's one of the real arts of um, of business development or sales because the business development aspect helps someone who's building stock. And yeah. there's I don't know. I've been to factories where there's a thousand people, and it's not just a thousand people that are in there. It's the it's the three to four people that hang off each one of those. It's Absolutely. wives, it's children, yeah. it's school fees, it's yeah. hairdressers, it's sandwich makers. It's, Huge impact for that small business in New Zealand and across the supply the other chain. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, can you can you share with us how many different stakeholders at the? And I'm, I'm imagining you're in the middle of the stakeholders, both from the manufacturers end, but also at the customer end. How many stakeholders did you have to try and grease the wheels of oh, to, well, to make all that happen? I can well, imagine it's really complex. Is, um, very apt when you're dealing in Iran. Okay. Oh, but look, how many? I don't know. I mean, a lot. But, you know, before you do that, you obviously got to have their trust because, you know, we've, we're having to um, offer them incentives, mm. um, you know, commissions that are outside the norm as such. Yeah. Um, and they've got to share it with their colleagues and then they've got to make a decision whether or not they actually take it to the board because, you know, should we be doing it this way? But ultimately we need the raw material um, because, again, you know, like any company, um, you know, boards are responsible, well, in Iran, of course, not to their shareholders. <laughs> they're, actually, they're actually responsible to the government. Mm. Um, so, so there's a lot of stakeholders. And then you've got banks involved, you've got shipping lines, you've got, um, uh, you know, obviously the supplies that have to be across where this product is going to end up. Uh, they were very, very conscious of the fact and we were always very, very transparent with them for obvious reasons that it is going to Iran mm. because they could, you know, bring the hammer down immediately to yeah. say, okay, we're not going to take that risk. Okay, 
you've identified a channel that we can do this legally and without having any backlash from the New Zealand government and any uh, pressure come to bear if the, you know, US Department of Trade finds out and what have you. So we were transparent with them up front because they obviously have to, you know, when we talk about stakeholders, from a supplier point of view, um, there was a lot of people involved because he was a wonderful opportunity to keep them all running. He was a wonderful opportunity to bring back a number of shifts because this order, you know, it, it took them about six to eight weeks to make it. Yeah, right. You know, and that had to be approved by the board. So on both ends of the spectrum, there was multiple stakeholders and then we've got... Just out. trying to understand what what the critical issues were for each stakeholders because at one end it's it's um, log supply and weather and all those sorts of things and at the other supply it's making sure that you're navigating your way through the extremely bureaucratic bureaucratic. Yeah, process well, it, of the Iranian government, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, it's all logistics as well because, you know, obviously the manufacturer's got to have the raw material and then we had to have the faith and trust from the buyers to ensure that we could deliver. You know, part of the payment had to be up front. Um, so we had to ensure that they trusted us that that was going to be delivered on time and under the terms and conditions of the part payment mm. because we had that in our hot little hand. Um, and ultimately they pay, in this case, you know, they pay 30% up front and then they pay the 70% balance when they had proof of delivery, yep. which in a shipping perspective, as you would know, is the bill of lading. Um, but you don't get to that stage until you've got trust that, you know, in principle, you know, you're laying all this out, Mr McGrath and your company and what have you, and it sounds good, but you've got to give me as much level of comfort as you could possibly give us without obviously giving us a finite guarantee because mm. uh, there were certain aspects of that whole supply chain that we just couldn't give them and you had to trust us. But the trust was effectively um, offered by our local guy. He was a local guy. He was an Iranian. Yeah. He spoke Persian. He dealt with these guys for decades and, of course, that opportunity wouldn't have come to the table without um, uh, him. And know. the relationship yeah. you had with him. Yeah. yeah. What about, um, do you remember the moment when you, was it, was it a clear moment where you, where, where you got the deal over the line? Yeah, I can remember it. Um, it was a late, beautiful, sunny afternoon in Gothenburg, uh, blue sky, and I jumped bloody, I nearly took out the fan. <laughs> In the, I, I suggest so the family really took you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the funny thing was that when I showed my colleagues, they just laughed it off and just just said, "Yeah, you've got it in writing, but bullshit will never happen." Yeah, right. You know, because we had had a number of years of not doing any business uh, in Iran, but prior to that, so uh, prior to that, it would have been four to five years where we were doing a lot of business in a lot of products in Iran. Mm. Uh, so. Um, you know, four to five years without having any business. Yeah, right. And then when you got an order of, uh, I think it was, I said 30 to 40,000 tonnes, I think it ended up being 35 or 37,000 tonnes. There was a great deal of cynicism within the camp thinking it's all very well. And, and they didn't know the source. I was the only one that knew the source. Yeah, right, okay. Well, they knew who it was, but they had no relationship with that yeah. source. And then they thought this bloody paper mill at the other end of the earth there's no way that this is going to happen. Yeah, right. um, so, um, you know, they deflated my, you know, excitement. Took a bit of shine off it, yeah, yeah, a bit of an anticlimax, yeah. which is disappointing. Yeah. What, what about, that's a good story, right? And, and I think, um, you know, we learn a lot from our successes, but we mm. also learn a lot from our failures. I'm not sure about you, but uh, I often say that I've got a face look like, like, I've, lost, like I've lost a few. And I've, <laughs> well, I've, as we all do at this I've, stage. Yeah. I've learned um, more from my failures, I think, um, than I have from my successes because they hurt more yeah. and they feel good because the shine comes off quickly when you when you win a big deal. Then you go, "Geez, I've got to work out how I now supply." It. Well, yeah, that the source is really on it. Yeah, uh, but can you share it? Can you share one that you actually lost that 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 really hurt you 
and, and what learning you took from that? Yeah, there's a couple that spring to mind. I suppose a small one from a monetary point of view was um, we were selling tissue product again with the Swedish company. Uh, so we were sourcing tissue product, coloured tissue. So the layperson would know it as coloured serviettes yeah. um, out of a mill in Sweden. And we were selling it to a guy in Malaysia who is actually an Australian who set up this business in Malaysia to convert tissue into finished serviettes and he exported them into Australia. And um, because he was Australian and I was Australian, um, you know, we had this, uh, I suppose, uh, naive, or I had this naive trust that uh, we could give him a, um, a little bit of credit. Um, and uh, a couple of orders went through and everything was fine. And then, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, as I say, three, four orders in, um, we shipped uh, part of the order, which was, I think, one of two containers. Um, it arrived and the deal was that he would pay on arrival. He didn't pay. We had the second container on a boat. So I couldn't stop that second container and I was shitting myself because it was probably at that stage 21 days into, um, you know, a seven-day, you know, so it was, uh, what, two weeks beyond, you know, the seven-day payment terms and, uh, you know, sweating on the fact that, um, you know, if he doesn't pay for the one that he's actually got in his hot little hand, uh, what am I going to do with his second one? Mm. Because he, he's got the shipping documentation, so he's got, you know, um, proof of um, ownership as such from a legal perspective. Mm. Um, and come a long story short, um, they never paid and he blamed a colleague in the accounts department and uh, claimed that he actually sent the payment through and there were fraudulent activity, activities and they blamed a colleague of mine that uh, supposedly circumnavigated that payment electronically into their personal bank account which never, ever happened, mm. but they maintain to this day that they sent that money and one of your colleagues mm. uh, changed the bank account and what have you and I'm not paying you again. What um, was your learning from that, mate? I, I, I've had similar experiences. What What was your learning from that? Because, you know, you talk, well, it, you talk about the value of trust yeah. and, um, you know, there's something here on my wall it kind of talks about um, trust and culture, um, about the fact that it takes years to build but 10 minutes to destroy. Yeah, and, and that can leave you really quite vacant as a human when you've given someone your trust, which is which can be priceless or it can be 50 grand, but it's priceless. Yeah, well, it, 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 my credibility within the organisation with my colleagues yeah. came into question. Yeah. Um, you know, he's this Aussie bloke, you know, uh, giving this Aussie company uh, more credit than he was supposedly had the authority to do so. Yeah. Um, so there was a great deal of pressure on me at the time. Um, you know, did I have a hand in this? Yeah. You know, was I copying a backhander? Yeah. Uh, has McGrath actually got that money in his uh, bank account? And nobody actually said that to me directly. But the innuendo was there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was constantly questioned by senior management. Uh, it would come up in board meetings. It would come up in management meetings. You know, you obviously have the spreadsheet there. You've got, um, sorry, the, the accounts. And then you've got, um, you know, uh, liabilities and outstanding uh, payments mm. and like. And, you know, there it is. You know, the name of this yeah, company yeah. constantly coming up, you know, so... Uh, um, you know, that was a pretty tough, a pretty bitter pill to Yeah, so what's the learning from you? How have you used that to protect you since? Well, I've never, ever given anybody credit ever again. Yeah, yeah. You know, without without having some very, very tight parameters around it and without other people in management or the board to sign off on it, so I'm not taking that that responsibility, um, you know, personally or just me. Um, I've never ever offered anybody credit again. Yeah. Um, I think anyone in that position, 
uh, certainly I've run the gauntlet on a number of yeah. occasions yeah. and, um, you know, it's helped me build uh, a big business. But every now and then you, you get found out because you trust too much. That's it. And, um, you know, I'd rather be like that because I think there's a certain amount of risk that, that comes with growing a business quickly that you have to take. Well, you know, I say, Charlie, I've never offered it to anybody and I have done it recently. Mm. <laughs> now that I think about it, and ironically, it's another tissue manufacturer in Australia, uh, but I won't get into the reasons of, of doing that. But it is because he's in my backyard, you know, mm. this guy in Malaysia, I was in Sweden, um, you know, the guy here, you know, if there's any type of uh, issue, you know. Uh, you can go and knock on his door. Yeah, I can go and knock on his door and I know other stakeholders that can obviously apply pressure if um, he's playing some silly games and I do trust him and that's why I've offered him credit. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so so, you've been in in sales for, for oh, nearly 40 years. years yeah, yeah, nearly 40 years. So, so, so what... What do you think has has made you successful and how have you got through the harder times in sales? So yeah, to, and there's been a hell of a lot of those. Yeah. A hell of a lot. For um, everybody, mate. Everyone has a sales funk. Yeah. Right? So yeah. how, answer that one first. How, how, how have you got through them? I don't know. I mean... Well, in latter years, over the last 25 or 30 years, it's 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 my wife. Absolutely. Your wife? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, you do, you know, you need somebody to prop you up sometimes because some of these holes that you fall into can be very, very deep. Very, very deep. Yeah. Um, and you've got to, you know, you've got to have somebody that, um, you know, give you some clear vision and yeah. uh, I suppose remind you that, not every person out there is like that person that you've had a ne negative experience with yeah. or, you know, there's a uh, there's a bright spot there, you know, you're focusing too much on the negative. But didn't you tell me something yesterday that you had that wonderful opportunity and you've quoted on this and, you know, that's a refreshing um, reality check, I suppose, yeah. but without having somebody that uh, supports you and obviously, in my case, loves me, yeah. you know, uh, I, I dread to think, you know, so many people who are on their own and you're thinking, God, how am I going to get out of this, you know? Yeah. You don't have that support network or you don't have somebody just to say, stop, stop focusing on the negative. You know, you've had these positives you told me yesterday or the day before or last week or what have you. Um, but you, beyond that, you know, before I was married or what have you, you know, that was seven or eight years, you you know, you just got to focus on, you know, what I call the excitement. You know, if yeah, you're passionate yeah, about yeah, something, the emotion, yeah. you know, the, and the emotion, if you're passionate about something, you think, shit, you know. And in those days, you know, in the late, when I was in my late 20s or whatever, you're single, you know, I used to phone up a couple of mates and just say, I've had a shit day, you know, let's go down to the pub. Yeah. A couple of beers, you know, you're fine after that, you know, <laughs> because you've got your mates, you know, taking the piss out of you, you know, it's all forgotten. For yeah, you need a Kevlar vest on for yeah, other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's what I honestly used to do at those times, you know, um, just get out of the office. Yeah, yeah. Just focus on something else, you know, change share your, a laugh. Change your state. Um, but uh, I think yeah, I'm not too sure if that's answered your question, Charlie. Yeah, no, but, I think, yeah. well, we also talked about it before. I think it's... um. It's about being patient with yourself. Oh yeah. It's about yeah. being. It's about persevering. In, in a belief. Yeah. Well, you got to have that. Well, I, I think it's about persevering and and also doing the basics. Basics, right? Yeah. The, the basics around, um, you know, just making contact with people, not necessarily to to sell to them, but to serve them in some sort of way. Yeah. And I, I I think you know to 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 jump to the next question, what do you think? Um, has been the secret to your success for a near forty-year career in sales, and, and patience is one of them. What are what are the other top two or three that you'd you'd say? Well, one that we haven't spoken about. We've spoken about trust. You know, in sales, I have three. I suppose is it values, beliefs. I'm not too sure how you identify them, but it, it, it's trust, patience, and um, and what I call research. Yeah, you know. Um, if somebody's given you an opportunity to sell to them, 
you've got to show them the respect that you've done some research, not just throwing something, you know, on their desk and saying, you know, you you wanted to buy, you know, a ream of copy paper, but, you know, um, what's the brightness level? You know, what, what, what are you actually wanting to achieve? Do you want to actually buy a copy paper that's recycled or virgin fibre or what's the brightness level, what's the whiteness level, what's the strength of that paper? Um, because there's no use selling him something that he can't sell to his clients. Yeah. So you've got to be giving him something that's providing a solution. So you should do that research either with him directly or, um, you know, uh, through other vehicles, stakeholders and what have you to understand, okay, well, their number one product that they sell is X. Now, I better do a bit of research into um, what I can supply, which is like with like, if that's what they want. So research is, is uh, you know, industry intelligence, whatever you want to call it, to ensure that if you've got the right product, that you can actually sell it at a competitive price because otherwise, you know, you're wasting his time. Yeah. You know, and you're not respectful of their time and what have you. So... Research is, is paramount. So you, you said research, trust, and what was your third go-to, your third Patience. Product? Patience, yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Because we as salesmen, you know, especially if you're paid by a commission, you want it to happen in five minutes, but your clients mostly don't work under that timeline. That's right. You yeah. know, so unless you go in there with a mentality of patience, you're going to be disappointed probably 90% of the time. That's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, of course, you're going to piss your client off if you're sending them an email and a, and a phone call every second day yeah, to have right. a look yeah. at your uh, proposal or your quote or what have you because they're on a different timeline, you know. Um, so, so, as I say, I just put that third uh, value, if you like, um, that the research and market intelligence, if you like. Yeah, uh, I think uh, know, know, knowing about knowing about your client and their industry and their challenges um, that they've got is is absolutely key. And the, the best way to connect with them is to under, tell them see problems they don't even know they've got. Right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think you've got to you, you know patience is there, curious curiosity lives there. Sure, sure. Uh, but also being someone and, and you talk about it as trust, but it's but it's being someone. There's comfortable to be around. Oh, sure. And 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 you know, I get that sense from you sitting here live today um, about that. Is that something that that you think you've been really conscious of your your social intelligence? You talked at you know at the very start of this about the um, what you learned from the guys in the factory floor. Yep, yep. Is that something that you you've been really conscious of? I need, there's a reason I'll ask you, and I'll just I'll share that in a minute. But yeah, I am very very conscious of it. I mean, um, conscious of of making people feel comfortable to share with whatever it is that they want to well, share. Well, mateship, mateship to me is um, paramount. Mm. Um, now, some people would say in the commercial world, or uh, you know, the buying and selling environment. You know, can you build up a mateship? Um, maybe not in the real mateship terms that a lifelong friend is. Um, but I suppose where I'm going with this, Charlie, is that, you know, over the probably the last 10 years or more, you know, I have five non-negotiables in my personal life and my business life, and it's... Um, you know, it's it's honesty, integrity, trust, mateship, and humility. I, I call them my non-negotiables because I don't negotiate with those. I mean, if people uh, didn't want to adhere to that, um, life's too short. You yeah. know, I'll spend my time with people either uh, in my friendships and my personal life or in business life that do adhere to those values. They don't necessarily have to adhere to all five, but if they break one of those, I'll just move on. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and as I say, one of those is, is mateship. You can have mates in business. They're different mates. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but they're mates because you enjoy their company, because you trust them. Um, they've got the same passion, but they're mates. But uh, they're, they're different mates to your 
old schoolmates or we your kind, private life yeah. or what have you. We kind yeah. of talked about this offline beforehand and just, you know, when we talk about the the experience that you gain in life and the wisdom that we that mm-hmm. you get when you move um, past your 40s into your 50s um, and the reflections that, that and the depth that comes from that, right? Yeah. Um, yep. I think some of my my reflections on, on at this time or for the last couple of years have been around um, some genetical traits that I think I, I learned of my maternal grandfather who I knew very well up until the age of uh, 26 when he passed away. Right, right. Um, and I learned some wonderful things which I've written, written about and, and spoken about. Um, but my also my maternal grand my paternal grandfather died six years before I was born. Right. But I still feel him inside me. Yeah. Um, so I th- and I've been really conscious and aware of of doubling down on his entrepreneurial spirit, and uh, and his uh, his up for a gag and 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 he'd have been a good mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm grateful. Well, it's those roots. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. You know, obviously that's coming through other generations and your parents and what have you through, you know, your grandfather. Um, But they're they're so important, so important. One thing he was, Peter, he was very, I'm trying to be patient, but he was also very thirsty. (laughs) And and, and I'm pretty thirsty now. So I share that. We're due up the road here for another very, very important uh, appointment. So we we might wrap it up here. Yeah, wonderful, Charlie. If there's anything, any last Pearls of wisdom you got for the audience, mate? Oh, geez, I don't think so. But uh, I suppose I've said it in, you know, throughout the discussion. There's a couple of pillars there of things that everybody has to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, in in times of doubt, um, but I won't repeat those. Uh, we spoke about them, but uh, I'll just leave it on that note. Let's go. Thanks, Charlie. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to the beer. <laughs> so See you, mate. Thank okay. you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, be sure to subscribe in your podcaster so you don't miss a future episode. And whilst you're there, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Charlie.